would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Today, as we continue on in our study of this Gospel, we're looking at the final verses in chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 43 and look down to the end of the chapter. You'll remember earlier in chapter 4, Jesus uh, basically was trying to go from Judea to Galilee and went through Samaria to do that and uh, stopped at a village called Sychar and met with a woman there at the well who uh, he told about the wonderful truth of who he was and she was converted. She went back to her village and she began to tell them about these wonderful things that she had heard from Jesus. And many people came to know the Lord. We pick that up in verse 43. And John tells us there that after the two days that Jesus stayed with the people of the village, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us in your word that your word is powerful. So we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit through your word in these next moments, that you would use it in a powerful way to conform us more and more into the people that you desire us to be. Father, we believe that we need help in our unbelief. We would ask for you to be at work to grow our faith, help it to be strengthened, that we might truly love you in greater ways and love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is faith? How would you define it? Somebody asks you, how would you describe it? It might be helpful as we try to understand what faith is to talk about what it's not. Faith is not just kind of a feeling or an emotion, something warm and fuzzy inside. And uh, faith is not merely just wishing or hoping that something is real or, or true. Faith is not something that only mature, older, godly people have. Those are not what faith are about. So what is faith? 
Well, the Heidelberg Catechism actually has a helpful definition. Question number 21 in the Catechism asks the question, what is true faith? And this is how it's answered. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Now there's a lot in there. But pull it apart and listen to this wonderful definition, this helpful definition of what faith is. Faith is a knowledge that is certain that all that God has said in His Word is true. Faith is an assured confidence that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have everlasting righteousness, and that we have salvation. It's a confidence that the Holy Spirit works into our hearts. Faith is knowing and believing that our salvation is given to us by God, freely by His grace, and only through Christ. Faith is something that is God-given. It is a belief, it is a conviction, it is a commitment to the truth of God's Word, and that we are saved by grace alone, by Christ alone. So that's what true faith is, but it might help us as we seek to understand that more and more, to see it in action. What does it look like? What does faith look like? Well, that's what we have here in these final verses in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. We have a picture of what faith looks like in action. So today we're going to look at five things that we can see from the text. We're going to look and see that faith involves the mind. It involves the intellect. Secondly, that it moves to the heart. Thirdly, that it has an object. Fourthly, that it is strengthened by action. And lastly, that it spreads. So first of all, we see that faith involves the mind. Now, we, John is telling us here that after the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus stayed in this Samaritan village for two days. And he was telling people the good news of the gospel. He was teaching them about God's word. And we read that people believed. People came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you'll remember, the whole reason why he was there was because he was traveling north to get to Galilee. He had more work to do. And so after the two days, John says that Jesus left Samaria and continued north into Galilee. Now, as we come to verses 44 and 45, commentators have spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of ink to try to understand and explain verses 44 and 45. John inserts this little parenthetical comment. Two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. And then verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, why did, why did John put that right there in the gospel? Why did he insert it right at that place? And, and what is it referring to anyway? Uh, in the, some of you may know that in the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that quote of Jesus about a prophet not having honor in his own hometown is used several times in each of the Gospels. And every time it is used, it is a reference to Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. But Nazareth isn't mentioned here, is it? 
And we don't have any uh, mention that Jesus just came from Nazareth or was just about to go to Nazareth. So what is going on here? Well, it's actually helpful to understand that the word here for his hometown can also refer to a larger geographical area. Think of it as his homeland, not just his hometown, but his homeland. Now, that could be Judea because Jesus spent a lot of time uh, in ministry in Judea, or it could be Galilee where Nazareth was a city. But as we look at the context of these verses, it would seem like what is being referenced here is Galilee. But then we have a problem with verse 45, because verse 45 says that when he got to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. If Jesus didn't get any honor or welcome in his home territory, territory, his his home uh, country of Galilee, then why was he being welcomed by the Galileans? Well, I think what happens here in these verses that follow give, help explain what, what John is helping us to understand. John inserts this parenthetical comment in verse 44 because he wants us to understand how Jesus was received by the Galileans. He was welcomed by the crowds of people in the Galilee, but that does not mean that he was truly being worshipped and honored and revered and believed in. Uh, Just notice what John said after he said that he came to Galilee in verse 45. The Galileans welcomed him. Why? Well, he tells us, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. The crowds that are there had heard about the miracles. They had heard about the signs and wonders that Jesus had done at the temple. Some of them had even been there and witnessed it. And now Jesus was there in the midst of them. And they wanted him to do some more. They weren't welcoming Jesus the Creator, Jesus the King, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Lord. They were welcoming Jesus the miracle worker. And they were hoping that he might do something in their midst. Maybe even he would give them something by doing a, wel- by, by doing a miracle. They weren't welcoming Jesus for Jesus' sake. They were welcoming Jesus because they could get something from him. This is a picture of consumerism. They were consuming Jesus. What can we get from Jesus? Now, before we go on, I think it's good for us to pause for a second. And regularly, we ought to be reflecting on our own lives. Making sure that we haven't slipped into consumerism With Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus and do you love Jesus for Jesus' sake? Or do you believe in him as long as you get what you want from him? Is the language of your heart as long as X, and you fill in whatever X is, as long as X is true, as long as X is in place in my life, then I will believe Jesus and I will follow Jesus. It could be a comfortable life. It could be a life with a lack of suffering. It could be success in your career. It could be a spouse that loves and serves you well. When we let that kind of a mindset slip into our hearts, then we are following Jesus, not because we love Jesus, but because of what we can get from Jesus. And in those moments, just like the crowd, we're consumers. But not everybody in the crowd was 
had that consumer mindset necessarily. We read in verses 46 and 47 this. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So in the midst of this crowd, there's this official. Now that word official is a technical term in the Greek. It referred to a servant in the king's court. And the king here is referring to Herod Antipas. So here we have, a, we have a servant, we have an official in King Herod's court, which means that this official was likely a pretty wealthy person. He would have been influential. He had power. He would have expected and received a degree of honor wherever he went. And he heard that Jesus was nearby. Capernaum, where this official lived, was about 17 miles from Cana, where Jesus was once again. And he knew, obviously knew something about Jesus. He had probably had heard about the signs and the wonders that Jesus had done. He probably had even heard about the miracle that happened down the road in Cana at the wedding feast. And we aren't told here at this point in the passage what kind of faith the man had. But there obviously was some kind of faith there. At the very least, he had an intellectual commitment, an intellectual belief that Jesus could help his son. His son was sick. He couldn't help him. He knew he needed help or he was going to die. And he believed, at least intellectually, that Jesus could do it. So he, what did he do? He either walked or he possibly took a horse the 17 miles up to Cana. This is part of what faith looks like. It has an intellectual component to it. It has an aspect of the mind. The man knew that he needed help for his son. And on some level, in an intellectual way, he believed that Jesus was the one who could help him. That's part of what faith in action looks like. It is intellectually believing, believing in your mind. But that's not all of what faith is. It can't only be intellectual. It has to move to our hearts. Many of you know the great story, you're probably very familiar with it, it's too good not to share it again, of, about a man named Charles Blondin. Now you may not know him by name, he was born in France in 1824 and he died in 1897. You may not know him by name, but you know him for what he was famous for. Charles Blondin became famous for walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And in fact he did it 17 times. He got so good at it that he actually started adding stunts into the times when he would go across the falls. One time he went across blindfolded. Another time he had a wheelbarrow with some weight in it, pushed it across the, the, the rope all the way across the falls. Another time he put his manager on his back and carried him across the falls. Another time he stopped halfway across and cooked an omelet and ate it and then went across. And the one that probably people know the most is that he actually carried a chair out onto the rope, put just one leg on the chair, and then stood on top of the chair on the rope. Now, often, as he became more and more known for doing these things, crowds would gather with great excitement to watch him do these things. And the story is told, and it's probably somewhat fabricated, but the story is told that at one of these gatherings of all the crowds, Blondin began to interact with them. He asked them, do you think that I can push someone across this tightrope in a wheelbarrow? And of course, the crowd was enthusiastic and they yelled, yes, 
We believe you can do it. So he asked for a volunteer. And nobody was willing to do it. Right? That's the difference. Believing that he can do it is one thing. Getting in the wheelbarrow is something altogether different. One is an intellectual commitment. It's a belief. Yes, we believe you could do that. But the other is more internal. It's in the heart. It's more of a trust to actually get in the wheelbarrow and put your life at danger. We see a picture of faith moving from the intellect of this official to the heart of the official in this passage. He goes to Jesus and he pleads with him in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, this is not the official actually speaking. This is John telling us what the official said. But even so, can't you start to sense the desperation in this man's voice? He has a son that he loves dearly, and his son is sick, and his son needs help, and he can't help him. And he's in front of the man that he believes that could do whatever needs to be done so that he would actually be helped. It's especially, you can, you can see it, you can feel it more, especially if you know that the word that's used here for asked has this sense of begging. And the tense that the verb is in means that it didn't just happen once, but over and over again. This was a man who was desperate and he was begging Jesus over and over and over again to come with him back to his home. You can sense the compassion and the concern that this man was experiencing. And when you understand that, it makes Jesus' response to him pretty hard to understand. Look at what he said to him in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That sounds a little bit harsh. Inconsiderate. Like a rebuke. Maybe even a little bit rude. This man loves his son dearly. He's pleading. He's begging with Jesus to come and heal his son. He believes that Jesus could do it. And Jesus basically responds by saying, unless you see me do a miracle, you won't believe. You're so immature. You're so weak that you need proof. What's going on here? Well, actually, I do think that there is a little bit of a rebuke going on. But it's not necessarily to the official. I have a pastor friend who pastors in Memphis, Tennessee. And about this verse, he says that we're reading the ESV translation, the English Standard Version translation. He said, actually, what would be more helpful with this verse in particular is if we had the SSV translation, the Southern Standard Version. If you look again at what Jesus says in verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Both of those you's are in the plural. He's saying y'all, you all. He's speaking to the crowd at this point. He's not he's not uh, uh, singling out the official when he says this. He's speaking to this crowd when he says this. People who had welcomed him because they hoped that he would do signs and wonders and maybe give them something. Now, it's true that the official was there, but I don't think that Jesus was primarily rebuking this official. I think he was actually testing him. In fact, we see two different tests happening in these verses. The first is when Jesus said this to the crowd. The test was, how would the official respond? Would he wield his influence? Would he make use of his power? Would he try to force Jesus to come with him back to the house? 
Well, you can see how he responded in verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He responds with humility. He responds with respect and and earnestness. He continues to plead with Jesus to go to his home. He even calls him sir, which in Greek is is the word kurios, which is translated as Lord. Seems like he did a pretty good job passing the first test. But there's another test here we see at the beginning of verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. You see what Jesus is telling him. He's basically saying, I'm not going to go with you. But I don't need to go with you in order to heal your son. I don't need to be in the room with him to make him whole again. Go home. Your son is healed. Your son is living and he will live. And here's the second test. What would the official do? You know, if you or I go to the doctor and we have some disease, we have some ailment, and we speak with the doctor for a few minutes, and then the doctor stands up and says, your disease is healed. Go home. We probably would like some proof. Run a test. Run a scan. Give me some proof that this disease is gone. If this official didn't believe Jesus at his word, he wouldn't have left. He would have stayed there and he would have continued begging Jesus to go with him back to his house. But what did the official do? Look at the end of verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed what Jesus said. He turned around and he started back home. And I want you to notice something too. If you look in verses 51 and 52... This is when the official is going down the road and his servants are coming out to meet him and they tell him, they tell him what happened. And he asks, like, when did this happen? Did you notice when it happened? What they said to him? It happened yesterday. That means that at one o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus told him his son was healed and go home. And it wasn't until the following day that he actually got home. Now, 17 miles is a good distance, but you can walk that. In five to eight hours, depending on how fast you walk. This official was not in a hurry to get home. He so trusted what Jesus had said that he believed that his son was going to be okay. He believed what Jesus said and he didn't rush to get home. This is a picture of faith that is more than just intellectual This is a faith that has moved from his mind to his heart. This man's belief in Jesus at this point is deeper than just an intellectual belief that Jesus could help his son. This was a faith in Jesus that truly trusted Jesus at his word. This was a man who so trusted what Jesus said to him that he was at peace about his son. This is a faith that is so different from what the crowd demonstrated. The crowd was happy that Jesus was in their midst because of what they might be able to get from Jesus. And this official is showing us the depth of a peace and a belief and a faith in Jesus that comes from the heart. This is what true faith looks like. It's not just an intellectual belief that Jesus says what he says and does what he does and is who he is. It's not just an intellectual commitment in our minds. It's more than that. It is a trust from within our hearts that even in the most difficult of circumstances or confusing circumstances or circumstances that we don't like, 
Jesus is still who he is. And we trust him, we believe him, and we follow him. That's a commitment that comes deep from within the heart. So faith is, it has aspects of an intellectual, it has aspects of the mind, but it also moves to the heart. And thirdly, faith has an object. Now that might sound obvious, but I want us to take a moment just to make sure that we all see it. The faith that we see this official has is not in some vague, imprecise, amorphous, unclear speculation or belief in something out there. The faith of the official has an object. You can see it by what John tells us in verse 50, at the end of verse 50. The official believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. He believed Jesus' word. And then in verses 51 through 53, we see even more. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. As the man goes towards his home and servants come out to meet him, told him that his son was healed. The man asked what time it was. They tell him it was the same time that Jesus had told him that his son would live. And the man believed. He believed in Jesus. He and his household. His faith had an object. That object was Jesus Christ. He had come to Cana to get something from Jesus. The healing of his son. And he ended up getting Jesus himself. Does your faith have the right object? Do you believe in Jesus just for Jesus' sake? Because his word is true? Do you love and follow Jesus just because you get Jesus? Or do you believe and follow Jesus because of what you might get from him? What he can do for you? Because if that's the case, then your faith has the wrong object. A true and genuine faith is one that believes and loves and follows Jesus simply because you love Jesus. It's not even because you get eternal life by believing in him. That certainly is a great benefit of believing in Jesus. But ultimately, if the object of your faith is Jesus, then you love and you follow and you obey him just because you love him. And if Jesus is the object of your faith, then there's a, a very encouraging reality for you. It gives you peace when you go through seasons of doubt in your life. When you have a time when your faith is shaken and shaking. Notice the text doesn't say to us that the official believed and then never struggled or doubted again. That's not normal Christian living. Normal, faith, norm, normal life of faith is a life that at times struggles. It, it is, a, it is a, a life that at times doubts. But if we have Jesus as the object of our faith, then there is a real hope and peace because our relationship, our acceptance with God is not contingent on how strong my faith is. Think of it this way. Why was this boy healed? Why was the boy made well again? It wasn't because of the faith of his father. It was because of the word of Jesus. Jesus spoke the word and the boy was healed. 
Why are you secure in your relationship with the Lord? Why is your acceptance between, before God fully confident? It's not because of the strength or the quality of your faith. It's because of who your faith is in. It's because of the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, but still a genuine faith that is clinging to Jesus, then you are secure in his love. And that gives you encouragement and hope in your moments of doubt, in your moments of struggling. So faith, genuine, true faith has an intellectual component, but it moves to the heart and it has an object and that object is Jesus. But notice we can also see in the text that true faith is strengthened by action. This official moved from an initial faith, a belief in Jesus' words in verse 50, to a deeper, fuller faith in Jesus himself in verse 53. How did he get from point A to point B? He acted on his faith. He acted on his belief. Jesus told him, go home. Your son will live. Travel those 17 miles back to your house and trust me that what I am telling you about your son is true. And then the man took action. He turned around, he put one foot in front of the other, and he kept going until he met his servants on the road. I want you to reflect for a moment what that walk or horse ride down 17 miles must have been like for this official. Each step was a step of faith because each step was taking him further and further away from Jesus, the one that he believed could help his son. Each step, the man was choosing to believe and to believe again that Jesus was who he said he was and that he did what he, he said he was going to do. And he kept on believing all the way home. One commentator that I was looking at this past week said the journey home for that official was like being in a furnace, like being in a fire, like when gold is put into a fire, it is made purified, it is made strong and beautiful. And the journey back home for the official, he was in the furnace. He had to believe again and again. And as he did, his faith was purified and strengthened such that by the time he met his servants on the road and he heard about what happened to his son, he was ready to fully embrace Jesus for who he is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord knows you and the Lord loves you with a perfect and eternal love. And he knows what you need in order to persevere to the end. He knows what fire, what furnace that you need to walk through in order to have your faith purified and strengthened. Sometimes he gives us fires that are manageable and easier to endure. And sometimes he gives us fires that are confusing and difficult and painful. But true faith is strengthened in the fire. As we trust the Lord and as we continue trusting him in the midst of the sorrow and the suffering and the hard things, he is at work in us. He's promised that the work that he has begun in us, the faith that he has given to us, he will bring it to completion. He has promised that he will work all things for his glory and for the good of his people. And so our calling is to put one foot in front of the other to take a step of belief, a step of faith, and then another step and another step and keep going. 
The Lord will use the fires in our life to purify us and to strengthen our faith. True faith is strengthened by action. Lastly, true faith spreads. This man believed, and so did his entire household. It's similar to what we see throughout the book of Acts. He got home, assuming he has a wife, he told her what happened. His servants, he told what happened. His children that could understand what was going on, he told them. Perhaps even this boy that was sick and had been healed. And what happened? They all believed. They all came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens when true faith is shared with others. It doesn't always happen on every occasion that you share your faith with somebody. It doesn't always happen as dramatically as it did with this official's home. But the Lord has promised in His Word... That as we faithfully and humbly and boldly proclaim to the others the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, the Lord will be at work using that as a means of bringing others to faith in Him as well. Now, I read part of Isaiah 55 to us last week as we were uh, celebrating communion. I want you to reflect on these words again from Isaiah 55. Listen, listen to this incredible promise, this incredible encouragement. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a powerful and comforting word to us. As we go out and we tell others about the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, God promises that His word will accomplish His purposes. His word is powerful. In other words, it's not our doing. It's not about us. What causes faith to spread is the word of the Lord. It accomplishes its purposes. It succeeds in whatever the Lord has intended to do with it. I came across a quote from Martin Luther this past week. He was speaking about how he, he was absolutely convinced that the Reformation began because of the power of the Word of God. And in good Luther fashion, this is what he said. Take me, for example. I opposed indulgences in all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip, the word did so weaken the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. As we believe that that is true, that God's word has that kind of power, it, it frees us up. It fills us with confidence and it frees us up. True faith spreads and it spreads to the power of the word of God. It frees us up from the fear of sharing our faith with others. It's not about you. It is the work of the Lord. And he is pleased to use you as a vehicle by which he brings others to faith in himself. And then we get the privilege to watch. But it doesn't just free us up from the fear of sharing our faith with others. It also gives us a great sense of hope and encouragement and confidence. 
According to Isaiah 55, God's word always accomplishes its purposes and promises. If there are people in your life that you love, friends and family members, that have not put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then believe what the Lord says rather than your doubts that they could ever come to faith. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop pleading to the Lord to bring them to faith. Don't stop looking for opportunities to point them to the Lord and to His gospel and to His grace and to His love. Because you never know what the Lord might do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is powerful. It is a means of grace. It's a means by which you teach us about yourself. It is a means by which you make us more and more into the people that you desire us to be. It is a means by which you strengthen our faith. We also thank you for the Lord's Supper. Because we know that that is also a means by which you do those same things. And so as we come to the table now, we do pray. Use it, Father. Use it as a means of strengthening our faith. Help us to go out this week with a faith that is certain and sure because of you. And that in response we would live in greater obedience. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.